from the Partnership for Public Service. This is Profiles in Public Service, a podcast that tells the stories of the public servants responsible for our government's most significant achievements. Be the first to hear new episodes of Profiles in Public Service by subscribing on whatever platform you're listening on. And if you like the show, leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Lauren DeYoung-Shulman. And I'm Rachel Klein-Kircher. The storm surge from tropical hurricanes causes most of the storm-related deaths in the United States. But until recently, hurricane forecasters had difficulty issuing accurate storm surge warnings to the public. That's where the National Hurricane Center's Jamie Rome came in. Jamie created a new forecasting model and warning system that more accurately predicts storm surges caused by hurricanes, alerting residents sooner of the approaching danger. He and his team also worked with weather forecasters and emergency managers, training them to use the system and communicate with the public during storms. Jamie has changed how the government thinks about hurricanes and has provided life-saving information to coastal communities. Jamie, welcome to Profiles in Public Service. To start, can you explain what a storm surge is and why it matters that the National Hurricane Center can accurately and reliably forecast storm surges? Yeah, great question. So so storm surges is, is simply strong winds in any storm, but typically in a hurricane, exert a force across the ocean and literally shove the ocean inland. And if the, the force of the water is, is enough uh, and it inundates communities, homes, businesses, uh, it, it inundates our lives. And historically speaking, so this is the part of hurricanes that's going to be the, for people listening, going to be like, huh, most people when they hear hurricane, they think wind, you know, oh my gosh, it's a cat two, it's a cat three, you know, wind, you know, lots of wind, my roof's going to come off. But if you look historically in time, Wind doesn't kill that many people. The vast majority of mortality or deaths in hurricanes come at the hand of water. And so for that reason, we evacuate in this country largely based off water risk, water threats, and storm surge is the preemptive driver of large mass evacuations in this country. Is there one storm that stands out to you as an example of the kind of damage that storm surges can cause? Oh, Katrina. So Katrina happened, you know, when I was still young in my career. And for those that don't know, Katrina obviously uh, struck Southeast Louisiana and coastal Mississippi. Coastal Mississippi has kind of been forgotten in that story and produced a 20 to 27 foot storm surge. So, you know, I stand six feet tall. So imagine what a 27 foot storm surge looks like. And so in that case, estimating the total number of lives lost is very, very complicated. But we estimate somewhere between 1,000 and 2,000 people perished at the hands of storm surge, which in a developed nation, to lose that many people in one hit is very traumatic. Wow. Place it in context. I think we, we both know 9-11 attacks, the impact that it had on, on our lives. 
And so I think for a lot of us at the Hurricane Center, we looked at that and it was just like, how does this happen? How does this happen in a developed nation with advanced communication capabilities? Or how does this this happen at all anywhere? And, you know, I can't speak for everyone, but for me, you you sort of had this reaction to it. Never again, never again on U.S. soil will this happen. And then you dedicate yourself to making the necessary scientific and policy changes to fulfill that commitment to yourself. And so Katrina would be, I think, the most influential storm, certainly in in, in my career. And Jamie, before the work that you've been more recently doing, the National Weather Service, the forecasting system would focus on high winds. And you just explained a few moments ago that it's the winds exerting a force against the water. And, you know, I love how you say it, water inundates our lives. I mean, that is drastic. And most people are thinking about wind. So that used to be the forecasting system. It sounds in theory now clear why that's not enough to provide a reliable prediction and a warning about coastal flooding. Can you walk us through a little bit more? How did you improve the forecasting system and what has the impact of the new system been since, I believe, 2017 when it was introduced? Yeah. So, you know, prior to these changes, everything about the way we forecast, disseminated those forecasts and interacted with the public you know, straight up communication, outreach, everything was wind first, you know, water second. So water was almost hitching a ride on the wind bus. And you can imagine that that's going to have a less than desirable impact when it comes to communication and understanding. Our warning system prior to this, a hurricane warning, everybody's heard of a hurricane warning. It was set up, the way we issue it was we issue it based off the wind threat in time and space, meaning The hurricane warning shows where the wind could exceed a threshold and is issued based off when that wind will arrive. And so when it came to surge and trying to warn on surge, we would try to use this wind warning system, you know, try to stick it in there. Right. Which was awkward. It was difficult. It it meant you either didn't warn enough, like you left the surge out or you warned too much for the wind. So you're trying to cover the surge by extending the, the hurricane warning, and it, it's awkward. This had been in, in the works and the discussion internally for a long, long time, especially after Katrina. But I think Ike was the storm that broke all of our backs and sort of said, yeah, enough. You know, we're going to muster the political will to do this. And the reason Ike, for me, was so like eye-opening is the storm surge forecast for the Bolivar Peninsula. So if you're not familiar, that's uh, sort of a barrier island right off Houston, Galveston. The storm surge forecast was 20 to 25 feet. Now, what about 20 to 25 feet is unclear. Think about it. The 20 to 25 feet wall of water, they're in a single structure out there that's taller than that. Yet people stayed. Like they didn't evacuate. And it's sort of like, okay, we're clearly not communicating well here. If something that blatantly obvious is not getting a public response. And so we took the decidedly humble approach and basically went to communication experts, you know, social scientists, behavioral experts, you know, people who specialize in why people do or don't do what they do, and basically said, you know, poke holes in everything here. What's wrong with what we were doing? And I mean, there was a you know, whole myriad of, of things that came out of that. I'll give you a couple of examples just to sort of put some meat on the bones here. We used to say the storm surge was going to be X number deep. So deep mentally makes you look down. And what we were trying to get people to do is look up over their head, over their house, over their roof, right? 
So you don't say 20 to 25 foot deep. You say 20 to 25 feet high. And while this seems like a, a, a trivial, silly change, it was one of many changes we had to make to get a more desired reaction from the public. The other thing we were doing, and, and this one, in retrospect, it sounds silly that we didn't know this, but media, we rely on media is our conduit to the public, right? You know, you, you watch your local weather person, you know that person, you trust them, you've got a relationship with them. So you're naturally going to turn to them when a disaster comes to tell you what to do, what's going on. Well, we didn't have any graphics that were visually appealing enough or good enough or high quality enough for the TV people to talk about storm surge. So they didn't. Shocker. So we said, okay, well, the, you, know, what, you know, tell us what are your graphical requirements. And so then we designed a specialized graphic that was intended to be good enough, TV quality you know, enough. And guess what? <laughs> now you know, I, I go home and I, I can't stop hearing about storm surge because they, they, they're all using this graphic. You know, the graphic is so, so good for TV, uh, people are using it. So just a couple of examples of to make it less abstract. I think what um, strikes me here, I, and I had read in a, another interview that you had talked about for students interested in joining the National Weather Service to not just focus on meteorology or physical sciences, but effective communication and social sciences are critical too. And what an example you just shared with us. I mean, this is life and death, and you had to go beyond the science to figure out a solution. You know, the, the thing I think people forget is they think of themselves as a scientist first. I think of myself as a public servant first, who's using science as a medium to make life better for people. And as a public servant, it is my job to figure out what people need that I'm not letting the science dictate the output. I'm letting the requirements of society dictate the output and then going back to science and saying science solved this problem. You're almost flipping the paradigm. You know, traditional scientists are like, oh, no, I got to stay pure. I got to stay pure to my science. I got to stay pure. People have to understand the mechanics of a hurricane. They have to understand, you know, yeah. they have to understand all this. And I don't see it that way. If a person takes the right action at the right time and it protects their life, I really just don't care if they understand a hurricane or not. Jamie, that's so well aligned with some of the work that we do with a partnership on customer experience. There's always a challenge amongst any person, but particularly in government, I think, where people are really passionate about their field of mirror imaging and thinking that if I just communicate the way I would to my peers who are in the meteorology or other kinds of communities, then clearly I'm going to get my message across. But thinking about and understanding the perspectives of the your audience is so important. So I just want to, I would love to hear a little bit more about this process you used in designing the graphic and other parts of your work in collaborating with social scientists, focus groups, and others. Can you talk more about that experience, what you learned from it, and how you think it might be applicable to some of your other fellow public servants in the space? Yeah, you know, so one of the greatest lessons I learned in, in like leadership school is there's great power and vulnerability. As a country, as a nation, as a society, we're, we're sort of taught, project strength, right? And yet there's great power and vulnerability. And by admitting that I didn't know, 
what to do to, to prompt a different societal outcome by admitting I needed help and input from these other disciplines. I think that's what opened the door to you know, these new perspectives and ideas. And, and, and admittedly, this is, this is hard for people who are supposed to be or, or, or assigned the label of experts within their field to sort of say, hey, I'm an expert. I'm the government expert on X, Y, or Z. But yet I have to go over here and ask somebody else you know, how to do it. It's a very hard transition for people to make. I'm a physical scientist. By nature, I communicate poorly. <laughs> it's just how it is. It's just how the world is. Just, it's just how life deals the cards, right? Yeah, you're doing okay right now, though. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I was going to say the same. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's just, that's just, that's the deal, right? You, you have to accept that when you're a physical scientist and your mind thinks numbers and math and equation and supercomputers. And th when your mind is geared to be good at that, that means the other half of your brain is probably bad at something else. And it's typically bad at communication. And when you accept that and just admit it and own it, and then go to somebody who is an expert in communication. I mean, you know, the other thing that we, I remember the social scientists telling us is we didn't make storm surge scary enough. <laughs> I mean, it sounds funny. It sounds funny now. Um, but, you know, you know, we were all business like, you know, you know, storm surge is going to raise water levels by this, you know, you know, very government straight laced business like. Um, and, th and they basically said you need to make it, uh, you know, scary, like scarier if you want people to to react. And so, you know, that changes the words you use. You know, maybe you use words like sudden right? You know, the water's not going to rise gently, you know what I mean? So that, you know, that sort of stuff helps. And I'll give you an example from Laura. We had a sensor in Laura that measured a, like a nine foot rise in water over the span of an hour. I mean, I'm guessing that none of you thought before I just said that thought that the water could rise that quickly outside of a tsunami. Honestly, like, as you said that, I thought like, I just gassed myself internally and thought, Oh, okay. This this is a game changing moment in my brain. You've just opened a door, and I think about hurricanes differently. <laughs> right. So, so when you say that, when you say so, so, so now the next time you hear a storm surge forecast, you're gonna you're, you're not gonna sit there and like argue with yourself. Well, you know, does it impact me? Should I go? What does it do? You're gonna be like, oh my gosh, you know, if the water can rise that quick. I'm out of here. Right. It totally changes the way you look at and process the information that you're receiving. The other interesting thing in Laura, if you uh, remember the news, the Hurricane Center made the unprecedented decision to use the word unsurvivable uh, right before landfall. And the backstory on that is, you know, we were hearing from EMs, you know, because we're, we're in constant communication with emergency managers, you know, local officials. So we kind of know what's going on on the ground. And, uh, you know, they were telling us that people weren't moving mm -hmm. or how do we get people moving? They're not moving. We're concerned and you know, people aren't moving. And so in sort of a last gasp, our last feeble attempt, we decided to deem the storm surge unsurvivable. I don't know if you remember, I've never seen anything snap the media and communications into line harder than that. That was all you heard. That was the message unsurvivable storm surge, unsurvivable storm surge, just repeat every media outlet, the globe over, just said it, repeated it over and over. And to the best of our ability, you know, from the data we have, the evacuation compliance rate, meaning of the people who live there, how many people evacuated, it appears 100%. 
meaning of the people in the direct path of the storm surge, sort of the area um, just southeast of Lake Charles. It appears nobody stayed. There were no rescues, right? So normally if people stay, either A, you find them after the fact and, and you know, deceased, or they request you know, to be evacu- airlifted out. There were no deaths from surge, and there were no rescues, which argues a 100% evacuation rate. And, and that number may seem, okay, well, that, sound, that sounds okay. Yeah, it sounds good. It's fabulous. But if you look back at historical storms, in some storms, we're lucky if we get 50 or 60% evacuation compliance. I don't have any data to conclusively say that word, that action did or did not do anything. But I have a hard time imagining, given how how the media got on board so well with that communication, that at least a handful of people didn't hear it and run. And, and we have, uh, you know, we have unofficial information, you know, people writing on our Facebook, you know, social media, thank you. I was struggling to get my family to go. And once you did that, they finally went, you know, so, you know, we have circumstantial evidence, but it's just hard to think that that didn't move some people. It's one comment and then I'll hand it back over to Rachel. Uh, I'm just remembering some of our prior interviews with folks who work in public health about how you know, scientists, as you said, Jamie, they, they want to be kind of very cut and dried. Science is science. This is what the outcomes are. But everything is contextual. In the public health field, you have to be understanding of your audience. And the the way we communicate these facts is you're not changing the facts. You're not exaggerating. You're not saying anything different. You're just putting it in a way that is actionable for people as opposed to just being like, oh, that sounds very scientific and I'm sure it doesn't impact me. I I know it is such a difficult change for many in that space to make, but it is so, I think, important from the public service perspective. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing we we challenge ourselves, especially more recently to do, and, uh, you know, this this will give you nightmares at night, is is we challenge ourselves to communicate in ways that didn't evoke the typical partisan reaction. You know, nowadays, if you say anything, 50% of the people automatically believe you and 50% of the people don't. And I think the, the, the recent, you know, COVID situation sort of, sort of highlights that, you know, you can't just rely on facts. If not contextually placed properly, people will view it through their worldview and filter and to do something about you. And, and you could see how it might be tempting especially in present times, for a large portion of the population to not believe us or question us. In how we got through the last couple of hurricane seasons with all the storms, I mean, so many storms, I can't even remember them all, in a pandemic, while science was being questioned, openly questioned, not not everyone, but the vast majority of people still relied upon the Weather Service and the National Hurricane Center still believed us. And I'm still trying to figure that out. But it was on the forefront of our minds every day that you almost carried this heavy burden of knowing you needed to say something and it needed to be dramatic and actionable, but not too dramatic so that folks didn't automatically assume, oh, there, there they go again. You know, there's scientists again with their chicken little, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean? Because that's naturally, that that's the, the natural worldview that someone would come to if you said something that they've never seen before is about to happen. 
Jamie, we're interested um, in going in a bit of a different direction for a moment. We were chatting about your team a little bit before we started to record. And part of the the fun of this podcast is getting to share with our listeners what's happening on the inside. So you are leading the Storm Surge Unit in Miami. How many people are actually on your team? What kinds of things do they work on? And what happens outside of hurricane season? How is your work changing? Oh, a great question because, um, you know, at this stage of my career, I'm relegated to paying the bills and making the bullet budget balance. So they do all the fabulous work. So it's good, you know, it's good that you give me opportunity to brag about them. <laughs> so it's a team of about, it waxes and wanes a little bit, but, you know, I'm going to say on average about eight people. And in the off season, we're doing, obviously, we're, we're trying to make the modeling and the forecast process better. Um, every hurricane teaches you something, you know, it slams you, it gives you a, a big old dose of humble pie and you got to go back and say, okay, how can I do this better? Or how can I make this better? And so, you know, we're refining the forecast process, trying to make it more efficient, trying to do more, trying to extract more, trying to make it more accurate, trying to increase lead times, you know, all these things that society needs with respect to hurricane forecasting. We're doing education and outreach. So, you know, you get new elected officials that might not know anything about a hurricane. So, you know, our job is to try to work with them and help them get spun up for next hurricane season, understand it, understand the forecast and products, you know, help them get comfortable making decisions in the, in the heat of the battle. We're updating hurricane evacuation plans, you know, so every hurricane exposes flaws. And so we look at those flaws and, okay, we need to update this plan. We need to update that one that sort of stuff. We're practicing in storm surge. We basically train as we play. So we run drills in the off season to ensure readiness, both in our technology and our people. You know, we're having conversations with partners and constituents to hear their perspective. Like one of the things we would do naturally, and we're already doing this, is have uh, conversations with the impacted people in, in Louisiana, the elected official, the emergency managers, the politicians, what did you hear? What did you decide? How can we make this better? So, you know, some people call those hot washes. I try to have a little bit of fun in between all of that. But I, I think, you know, you sort of alluded to at the beginning and, you know, what inside the ballpark. And I, I don't know that I addressed that, but I will now. One of the things that people didn't know during the height of the pandemic is um, because our storm surge staff is so specialized and there's just so few of them, we were really, really worried about continuity of government. You know, that if an outbreak happened inside the hurricane center, what would happen? And so behind the scenes, there was a tremendous amount of planning and practicing in the event of if a scenario unfolded. You know, if I was unable to discharge my duties, what would we do? You know, it is this continuity of, of government. And at one point, we decided to make the very risky decision. We made the storm surge unit of the National Hurricane Center entirely from home during the 2020 season. Now, that working from home is not novel. We're all working from home, have worked from home, tired of working from home, whatever. You know, everybody has some experience working from home. But issuing the nation's warnings that prompts the evacuation of hundreds of thousands or potentially millions of people from home, probably the scariest thing you could possibly imagine. And we did it. And we didn't make much fanfare out of it because we were afraid that it would distract from the forecast. You know, people would be so oh, enamored with that or, oh, my God, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. They lose faith in the institution. 
So we basically kept it kind of quiet on on the hush hush, I suppose. And but yeah, every single storm surge warning during that miraculous season. I don't know how many storms hit us. It's just like a blur issued from home, which is incredible. An incredible, incredible feat from our staff, from our team to transition not only their technology but their con ops, even just straight up routine coordination that you would normally just look over at the other person and say, oh, what do you think? I'm thinking five feet. Oh, yeah, yeah. I see it. You had to change the way you coordinated and communicated. And the fact that they did that with no disruption. And I'm guessing upon hearing that you were surprised. And it's that surprise that I is my metric of success. The fact that people didn't know, which means the forecast was issued unabated. Yeah, and I imagine that's not one of the things when you talk about training in the off season, that's not one of the things that you trained for. No, no. <laughs> so I'm trying to think back in time. You, you, the pandemic really, you know, got going, I think in January, February, you know, we were all trying to figure out what in the world's going on. And then, it, you know, at some point we all realized, hey, <laughs> it's this thing going away. You, you know, it's sort of here to stay and hurricane season's coming. So, you know, that was probably like March, I'm guessing, March or April. And uh, it's like, oh my goodness, you know, we're going to have to, you know, sort this out, figure this out. And <laughs> we're still sorting it out, figuring it out. In the first storm, you know, you, you, you kind of like close your eyes and turn your head as you hit the hit the send button because <laughs> you don't exactly know what's going to happen. So those were some incredibly tense, scary times. But, you know, everything in life, it's it's you're making decisions based off risk. We're trying to mitigate risk. And at, at the time, we felt that the risk of our staff being unhealthy or unable to discharge their duties outweighed the technical risk of you know, not being able to disseminate. Now, here we are in time that that risk profile has evolved. Uh, we reconstituted a storm surge staff to the center during the 2021 hurricane season. So those forecasts were issued, you know, tr- traditional means from the office. But yeah, it's, it still fascinates me. And I, I say this because Government tends to be a punching bag, you know, slow, boring, stodgy. These people couldn't do anything quickly if they had to. And yet there's a classic example of how government can and does respond rapidly to the needs of society. It's definitely part of the amazing story of 2020 in particular, where so many public services on a dime as you said, started working from home. Things are, they went from contact centers, which is one thing answering the phone. You can think of doing that quite easily from your desk in your home office versus your office office. But the idea of transitioning that entire capability to people's houses in their own environments is amazing. One of the points you're making, Jamie, as you were talking about your team is the the coordination that you do with offices around the country. And that's such an important part of your job is collaborating with local National Weather Service offices. Can you just give folks a little more context about how many local offices you work with and how do you ensure that they're all getting the best information from your team that they need to provide to the public? Because I'm sure they all are quite different in their needs and what's going on around the country. Oh, what a fabulous question. I I can't off the top of my head remember the exact number of total offices. I'm going to say, I'm going to guess 120. But just to give you a rough order of magnitude, there's more than 100. Of the ones that are in hurricane prone areas, obviously it's a subset of that. So, you know, I'm probably coordinating during a storm, uh, you know, a bad case, you know, a storm running up the east coast of the United States, it could be, you know, 10 or 12 offices, you know, an easy case, you're three or four. And it's fascinating. You sort of hit on something. They all have different experiences. 
uh, you know, some cases somebody just moved from North Dakota and has no forecast hurricane in their life. In other cases, you know, they've got 20 years experience. So clearly you can't approach every office, every circumstance, or every forecaster similarly. The other thing that people forget in this, and that's why it's such a great question, is there's always a office, if not two, that are in the direct line of the hurricane. And these folks are simultaneously, in addition to dealing with the exhaustion of the job, and it is, the science is not hard. The stamina is what is hard. They're dealing with that mental exhaustion, and then they're emotionally, you know, run through the ringer because they're preparing their own house. In some cases, they're evacuating their own family. They're sending their husbands and wives away, kids away. They're boarding up their house. They're contemplating if their house is even going to be there afterwards. And yeah, you, you really have to approach every circumstance differently. And every storm is different. Every forecast office, every forecaster is going to have a different set of needs, what they need. You know, like I said, some some have been doing it for a long, long time. And, you know, they're, they're sort of a bottom line up front. You know, just give it just give it to me. Just give me the numbers. I, I got it. And other people, you know, maybe need coaching or, you know, that sort of stuff. So, Jamie, we'd love to wrap up with learning a little bit more about what what has driven you this entire time. Your Your whole career has been in public service. First job out of college with Environmental Protection Agency. And you've been with National Hurricane Center um, since 1999. We'd love to know what got you into meteorology, what led you to pursue your passion for that in the federal government, and what's kept you there? In the beginning, it was rather innocent. I didn't like school, ironically enough, when I was little. I learned that snow was the easiest way to get out of going to school. So that propelled me to try to motivate it purely by the fact that I didn't want to go to school, which is sort of like backwards. You, you know, you think most people are like, you know, if they're going to go into something like this, they probably love school. And, and then you went to college. And as is the case when we all go to college, you're like, yeah, I, I don't know. Let's just pick something and give it a whirl. Right. You know, and so we just went with that. And the first couple of years were tough because it's all math. You know, it's like decidedly boring. It's like, wait a minute. You know, I, I, I went in this to learn how to predict snow and all I know how to do now is derive equations and thermodynamics. And then finally we turned the corner about the junior year and got into real weather. And it's been a love affair ever since. It's fascinating because atmosphere is a fluid when you think about it in understanding the atmosphere, understanding fluid dynamics and enab enables one to understand a myriad of other topics, how water works, you, you know, it just opens up the world in terms of an understanding. It didn't take long for me. I've been always been an avid fisherman and, and you moved to South Florida. This is a, this is a fisherman's heaven and diving and all that sort of stuff. So then I became a boater. So then you start doing waves. I got, okay, I got to predict the waves now so I don't drown. And so you got hurricanes and you got waves and water, you know, storm surge is just a natural culmination of all of that. The, the public service part, that probably came earlier from my parents in the sense that you know, this instilled in me early in age that there's more to life than, than serving yourself. You know, you, you got to give back. You, you got to leave the world in a better place than you found it. So the math, mathematicians would understand this is mass balance, right? You don't take more than you put back, you know, that sort of thing. Public service just became a natural way for hopefully me to leave society with a surplus versus a deficit. 
It's interesting to me that you said earlier that as a scientist, perhaps you communicate in one way, but I am finding that I've learned so much because of your ability to communicate, not just the science in a sciencey way, but just in a very accessible, very human, very like you, you've evoked so many reactions, I think, for Lauren and for me. This is incredible. So just thank you so much for your time today, Jamie. We really appreciate having you. No, this is, this is, this is an absolute treat. Uh, I, I rarely get an opportunity for people to ask these types of, of questions in, in an interview or, you know, uh, so this is, this, is, this is a real treat for me. So thank you so much. Rachel, in the book, The Fifth Risk, one of the sections talks a lot about how to communicate warnings to the public and how that is part of the role of government in public service and really only something that government is is obligated to do. And as Jamie was talking about how to not only measure the storm surge and put it in scientific terms, but how to use all of the assets that he has on his team in order to tell this story. I kept thinking of that over and over again, how this is government's job that no one else can or feels obligated to do, to actually tell the story of how the public will be impacted by things that we can't control and how lucky we are to have public servants who are bringing together all of those assets. Oh, yeah. And the way Jamie described it, he said, I'm the expert at the science, but fast realizing I may not be the expert in how to communicate the science because that's the public doesn't need to understand the science so much as the impact. And that was so instructive and fascinating for me. And just the his example of, you know, storm surge and the water is deep, but that the perception we need to say it's high so that people are thinking in that way, looking up and not down. And oh, I get it. That's that's dangerous. That's, you know, life and death situation here. And that it can't just be a matter of, you know, the storm surge is going to be X feet deep and we sort of leave it up to you to interpret that information. Like that part of the role is to think through very carefully what is it that you need the public to understand and where is it you are hoping that they will take action in some way. But in a way, I mean, he was so eloquent on this that continues to build their trust in you, that it is a sustainable relationship and um, I mean, his points about how they were able to operate so effectively, first of all, from home, which is amazing. But second of all, during a period where there was so much questioning of science and scientific data was remarkable. And I, I, I think there's so many lessons to take away from that in terms of how we talk about science and how we talk about government's obligation to be a part of that conversation. And how stunning that must be for a scientist to think, okay, I have to choose my words very carefully now for all of these different reasons. And it, and it also, you know, really does emphasize, you know, when he talks about all of the different disciplines that you need to be versed in or to ask for help if you are not the one with the expertise, it, it all comes into play here. And, and not only that, when he talks about some of his partners, they are also at times the clients because they are in personally in the path of a hurricane while having to report or working in the emergency management office. There's just so much to take into account here. I did love how he said, you know, the science is easy. Like, really? You came up with a model to forecast storm surges. Forecasting is not like, I, I mean, I can't do it. 
I can, I just made like a very basic math error today. But I, I did take his point though, that like the science and the forecasting is what it is, but the stress of the job is, and the, the resilience that is necessary to perform you know, over a relentless period of months where so many of his partners, as you said, are at risk. It's such an incredible role that they they undertake for us that I'm sure many people, when they turn on the National Weather Service or so many other things, they're not really thinking about. And I think what most people are seeing in the public eye is that, you know, during the hurricane season, that's what we think of what this team is doing. So it was so interesting to hear, you know, what are they doing during the off season, as he called it, you know, similar to a sports team where, you know, you have your games all season long, but in the off season, you're working just as hard, if not harder, training and practicing and drilling and all of the things that that team still needs to do and the education and outreach that they're doing and working on their modeling and forecasting. I mean, they're never done learning. And I love the point he made that each hurricane, you know, is very humbling and helps them to do their job even better for the next time out. And just to close out with the beginning of the conversation that we had with Jamie, and I asked him about, was there a hurricane that really stuck in his mind? And he talked about Hurricane Katrina and how it was truly a never again moment for he and his team. And I had he told us there's going to be times in this conversation where you're going to say, why I had no idea. And as somebody coming from the national security world, that was absolutely an I had no idea moment for me that the folks who work in that space, not only in the female response space, which clearly there was a lot of lessons to be learned. I had not occurred to me that the folks who do all of this work behind the scenes in terms of telling the story of when is it you need to take action? What is it you need to be how do you prepare? How do you keep your family safe? That they had the same moment and that they were working so hard behind the scenes and do so every year to better help us prepare for those events going forward. What a great story for him to tell and in a way to showcase the work that his team does. And it made me so delighted to be able to help share his narrative with the world. Yeah, absolutely. I learned so much and, and he was a pleasure to listen to. And it's clear he is so into what he does. So thank you, Lauren. Thank you. So that's our show. Thanks so much for listening. Profiles in Public Service was created by the Partnership for Public Service. Our researcher and writer is Emma Jones. Our script supervisor is Barry Goldberg. And our executive producer is Jordan Lapierre. Profiles in Public Service is produced by District Productive. I'm Lauren DeYoung-Shulman. And I'm Rachel Klein-Kircher. See you next time.